Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the Book of Romans, chapter 12, Pastor Murphy showed us the problem and process of biblical change. Today we'll see the purpose of biblical change. For your Bibles to the Book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and let's read again our text, verse number 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For almost three months, we have been exploring the biblical doctrine of the psychology of change. No other writer in the Bible outlines this process like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in my mind, gives us the clearest and the deepest understanding of this subject in all human literature. Whether you're talking about the secular literature or you're talking about sacred literature. There is no teaching on the subject of behavioral change that can compare with what we have here with the Apostle Paul. In the last hundred years, a new school of learning called psychology has arisen, and its fundamental goal is how do you change human behavior. That is the whole gist and essence of what psychology is about. Today we hear such names as Freud and Watson and Skinner, Maslow and Adler, Ellis and Roger. These are the prominent names that you hear out there when you go to your secular schools and you deal with psychology. All of these men have applied their considerable skills and their natural brilliance to trying to unlock the secret of how to bring about behavioral change in human beings. But like any study, which depends exclusively on the fallen, darkened understanding of man, you will find that all conclusions along this line will therefore be inevitably inadequate, misleading, contradictory, false, and even harmful. You can never understand man unless you factor God and God's teaching in his word. Today, therefore, without fear, without contradiction, without any form of denial, I can state that after 100 years of psychology and 200 different forms of therapy, the world today is worse off than it was in a pre-psychological age. We are worse off morally, we are worse off ethically, We are worse off mentally, and we are worse off spiritually. I don't think anybody can deny that. Any elderly person sitting here who knew what life was in Antigua uh, 50 or 60 or 70 years ago would tell you, we might be more prosperous in terms of materially prosperity, but when it comes to moral and ethics and decency and spirituality, we're actually in a very lower stage. Any adult person will tell you that. 
I can tell you that from my own generation. And I can say it to this new generation that my generation was far more spiritual and moral and ethical than you were, than you are today. So psychology hasn't really helped. Uh, it has really, in a great sense, done tremendous harm to society. And here's the reason. The common denominator that links all of these psychologists together is that they're all governed by a godless philosophy called humanism. Every single one I just mentioned to you, Freud, Watson, Alder, uh, Skinner, all of them, were what you call secular humanists. Now, if you don't know what secular humanist is, let me just tell you the four basic flaws or tenets of humanism. One, there is the denial of a God and the denial of the Bible. Every one of these men did not believe in God and did not believe in the Bible. But yet they're telling us how to change. Any Christian should be aware that they don't have the wisdom to tell us how to change. See? Secondly, every single one of these deify man. And when I say deify man, they exalt man and make man the, 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 uh, the ultimate of everything. God, man is at the center. They have knocked God off the center and put man on the throne and said man is the measure of all things. Man can decide right from wrong, evil from good. What is the summon bonum of life or the best of life? Thirdly, they have defined meaning exclusively in terms of this life. So if you want to know what is meaningful and what is purposeful, you can only define it in terms of this life. There is no great beyond. There is no transcendent existence. If you want to have meaning and purpose in life, you must find it in, in, down here. What you can accomplish, what you can achieve. That's how you find meaning and purpose. And the fourth tenet that they have is that they mockingly abominate any concept of an eternity and a future that man will live somewhere forever. In other words, when a man is dead, he is dead as a dog. Every one of these men believe that. But yet these are the same men that have, are trying to tell us how to change human behavior. The common link between all these men is secular humanism. But it's the Christian position and should be your position that human behavior and the process of change cannot be fully understood apart from the creator's manual that explains to us the process by which it takes place. Now, that should be the Christian position. Unfortunately, it is not. Unfortunately, it is not. We are turning to other means because we're saying that God's word is insufficient. It's inadequate. We have to go outside scripture to find the solutions to life. So we no longer believe what Peter said, that God has given to us all that pertains to life and godliness. We no longer believe that. Oh, we profess to believe it, but in practice, it contradicts what we claim to believe. Now, by the way, I'm not saying this morning that these men, by studying, studying the human personality, have not gained some useful insights into the human personality that we can benefit from. I'm not saying that. These men were not ignoramuses. These men, in many sense, were some of the most brilliant men of their time. So 
See, we're not to assume that they didn't discover anything that was helpful to us. But when they begin to teach things that are contrary to Scripture, they have gone off, and this is right, and they are wrong. Doesn't matter who they are, how many PhDs they've got, what schools they've been to, they are wrong if they go contrary to Scripture. You see, the reason for that is that God made the internal mechanism that makes you respond the way that you do. So if I want to find out what the internal mechanism that makes me behave, I must go to Scripture. And as I explained to you, the Bible has explained that within you, there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the that's within every one of us. These are the things that move us to do what we do. Not the unconscious, but these. And the, and the thing that appeals to these things is the world. What's in the world? So we've got to understand there are two things working against us, the world and these enemies within. But the Bible pulls back even further and shows you that in addition to the world, you've got an enemy called the devil that uses the world to stir up these things in us to make us do what we do. Now, when we begin to understand that, then we now got a handle on what the mechanism is, why people do what they do and behave the way that they do. We don't have to go outside Scripture to discover these things as believers. Consequently, I'm saying to you that no matter which writer you read, which psychology you turn to, you will find, quite frankly, that they give you an inadequate paradigm of how change works. Because they have abandoned God and abandoned Scripture, they are now left to their own fallen understanding to try to come up with a solution to the problem. And that's why there are 200 different theories. Because none of them have been able to come up with the solution that the Bible explains to us. So rather than solving our problem, I would say to you that uh, psychology to a great extent has created a framework so that we can excuse human behavior. They began to search to see what causes human behavior and they end up telling us how we can excuse human behavior. And let me tell you the way they did that. Because they say the thing that makes you do what you do is your past. Now how many people can control their past? You can control your past? So if my past control me, I, my, my, my present is determined by my past. Now, it's not, it is helpful to understand a person's past to understand what they do. But it's not their past that make them do what they do. You make choices about your past. How you interpret your past and your response to your past is what makes you do what you But not your past making you do it. And then they come up also with the fact that your environment is what makes you do what you do. Well, if my environment made me do what I do, quite frankly... Again, I'm a helpless person. What they're doing now is getting the guy who's doing what he's doing to come up with reasons why he's doing what he's doing. So when he goes to court, he says, it's my past. I had a bad mom. And I had a bad dad. And I brought him in a bad village. And they made me who I am. That's not true. That's not true. You are who you are because of the choices you made. I repeat, you are who you are because of the choices. I'm not saying you didn't have a hard time, you didn't have a difficult time. But again, facing a difficult time didn't make you do what you did. You chose to react to that thing because how you interpret it. So you're responsible for your actions and your behavior. 
If it's not the past, it's not the environment, they come up with the idea, and uh, this is the worst of them all, the unconscious. This is what Freud teaches, by the way. This is Freud's theory. The unconscious controls you. Again, when you tell me the unconscious controls me, no, I don't have another reason for excuse my life. I, I can't hold myself responsible now because something that I'm not conscious of is driving me. I'm not responsible. See. If that doesn't work, they said, no, they, they have a new theory now that it's the chemicals of your body, the hormones that make you do what you do. So when you turn 13 or you become coming to puberty, you don't get in puberty at nine, nine years sometimes, sometimes it's even less than that. It used to be 13, 12 and 13. Now it's nine because of all these hormones we put in, eating chicken and all this kind of stuff. So you'll find that a young girl who used to see her period at the time when she was 13 or 12, she's now seen it at nine, sometimes even earlier than that. So they're arguing now, it's the chemicals that make you do what you do. What I'm saying to you that in every case where you look at what these people have come to the conclusion, they're now giving people an excuse for everything that they do and blaming it on something else, somebody else, rather than accepting full responsibility. If you don't like what I just said, the other thing that they said is because our evolution is incomplete. We're not quite there yet, but we're going to get there sometime. So if I am not, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not there yet because evolution is not, so I'm blamed. And then the other one is this, the reason why they do what is because they lack education. So we will educate them. That's the problem with sex education, by the way. I do not believe that sex should be taught in the schools. Sex education belongs to the home, not the school. See? I repeat, it belongs to the home and not the school. When you teach a 13 and 12-year-old child and you show them the body parts and tell them what has happened, think it creates curiosity. They want to find out now. See? And if you have a teacher that is, has a prurient mind, and because they lost their virginity when they were younger, they don't want these young people to do that. They encourage them by the way. They, they teach it salaciously so that it creates this desire. See? Belongs to the home. God never gave the government the responsibility for our children. The parent is responsible for the children. See? Unfortunately, uh, we have not responded to that and therefore we allow that. In my day, it was not taught in our schools. And I'm not too sure if my dad and my mom had known it was being taught in the school that they would have allowed it to be taught to us in the school either, even though they were not Christians. So what I'm saying to you this morning, when you look at the approach to this subject of how to change human behavior and look at the conclusions that these men have arrived to after applying all their skill and their brilliance to this subject, is a fresh breath air of relief when we look at the clarity and the simplicity that we find in Paul's teaching on this subject. It's as though it was there all the time. How come they couldn't see it? And the reason why they couldn't see it is because they've abandoned the Bible. They've abandoned God. So they never saw this manual as a source of information to explain human behavior. And the problem that has created today is a real problem within the church. I repeat, it's a real problem within the church. Because that thinking is siphoned off into the church. See? Because it seems to be some kind of an ed uh, educational conclusion on this matter. 
And there are believers that when you advise them using biblical teaching how to deal with matters, they're just not satisfied with that. The Apostle Paul, in his simplicity and in clarity, does three things in this passage. First of all, he explained what are the impediments to change behavior. What are the barriers to changing behavior? Quite frankly, we're not going to go through this, but the problem is that the world is constantly moving us in its direction. The enemy of our soul is using the world to appeal to those three things within ourselves. And that is why we find that we don't change. And when we do change, it never changed like a curve that is straightforward. It is like this, down, up again, down, down. It's never smooth. And the reason for that is, is the world around us so appeals to us that we begin to make change and then suddenly something else appeals and we drop down here. And then we go back up, we go back down. So he explains that. So he not only explains the matter of uh, how to bring about change, but he understands the difficulty of maintaining this, this, this change behavior. Secondly, he talked about the process of change. And uh, Paul said, you know what? Don't work on the behavior. That's not the problem. That is the consequence of a greater problem, which is the thinking. So don't, you, you don't try to deal just with the problem. You try to deal with the thinking that created the problem. Have the mind renewed. Because thoughts produce feelings that produce behavior. This is where it all starts, up here. And then it acts out itself down here. So if I can change a man's thoughts... I can change his feelings, and I can change his behavior. Now, that makes such absolute sense that when you read it in the scripture, you say, Eureka, now I understand. See? And that's what Paul wanted the first century believers and us to understand. Unfortunately, it's taken us so long to grasp this principle. This morning, we come to the third and final element of Paul's teaching on this subject, which has to do with the direction of change. The directive of change. Why do you want people to change their behavior? Why? Because they're disrupting the home. And you don't want to have a greater handle on the control of the home. Is that why? Why? Is it because he drinks so much that if I can stop him drinking, I have more money to provide for the children? Is that the motive? Is that the reason? What the directive of change? This is what Paul now explains, the whole purpose and the goal of change. And here the Apostle Paul is bringing this teaching to a climax as he explains that when we pursue the renewing of our mind, the ultimate motive for change is to bring our lives in line with God's will. That's the whole purpose of it. In other words, here's man, here's God's will. Okay? And what you're trying to do is to bring that man into conformity to God's will. But to do that, there's a process of change. He can't reach from here to there except going through this process of change. And that's why the renewing of the mind is so vitally important for the Christian. So a believer who doesn't read the Bible, who doesn't listen to the Bible, who doesn't study the Bible, will never have a renewed mind. 
They will always be thinking carnally and always come up with the wrong explanation for things and have the wrong motive for things and the wrong spirit in dealing with things because the mind is not renewed. The Apostle Paul is now saying that the reason why we renew the mind, that, notice what he says, that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, that, in order that, we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So Paul is saying the renewed mind is about having a better understanding and a better appreciation and a greater respect for God's will in regard to our lives. And that's the ultimate objective, to enable the believer to understand and appreciate the will of God in a way that it was not possible in, a, in his unrenewed mental state. See, That's what Paul is saying. When your mind is renewed, you see God's will in a completely different sphere. You have different eyes to see God's will. As a matter of fact, when you look back on your life, and many of us do it, when we look back at the things that happened in us before we were saved, to us, those are some of the worst things that ever happened to us. After we get saved and we look back at those things, you know what we say? You know, if those things didn't happen to me, I would not be saved today. So we, we say that these are good things. Good things. But when you say they're good things, the guy out there listening to you say this is a good thing, say, but wait a minute, what world is that person from? What has happened? You're the same person. Your mind has changed. Your understanding has changed. Your understanding of God's will has changed. And as a result, the things that once seemed the most devastating things in your life, the most painful things, the most hateful thing in your life. No, you would not surrender those. You would embrace those things and people think you're crazy. Because you understand, to move you from here to there, God had to do something in your life. And if those things did not happen, you would never have come to the point where when he speaks to you through his word, you responded. He was preparing you all the while to the good and the bad to achieve and accomplish his will. So we're dealing with a very profound subject this morning, the matter of God's will. And I would say to you uh, this morning that what differentiates Christianity from all other religions and cults is exactly at this point of emphasizing the will of God. Christianity is not just better than any other religion or any other form of cult. Christianity is unique. It stands alone and it is unparalleled. There's nothing to compare like it. See, There's no comparison. Because the emphasis of Christianity ultimately is about God's will. God's will is the ultimate of Christianity. You see, it not only concerned about a man's conduct and his behavior. It is concernable, but it's not merely concerned about that. It's concerned about man's conduct and behavior in relation to God's will. So that's how we view this whole matter. And it's a Christian perspective that is so different than any other religion that you can talk about. So when people today talk about a Christian being just a good little gentleman and just being a decent person, they're not teaching Christianity, they're teaching morality. 
Because Christianity is not just you being a good, decent gentleman, a good, decent lady. That's not what Christianity is about. That's morality. Christianity is about you fulfilling the will of God for your life. Yeah, you must be a good gentleman, a good lady, decent young person. Yes, that's important. But if it ends there, you haven't gone anywhere yet. The ultimate goal is God's will. That's what makes Christianity so unique. The problem is that we have ignored this teaching and this doctrine for so long that we get people the impression as long as you're a good, nice little person and you don't do certain things, you're okay. You're okay. From beginning to the end of the Bible, it is all about God's will and doing God's will. Let me ask you a question before we go further into this message. What's the goal and the end of Christian conduct and Christian behavior? What's the goal? Is it to please myself and you to please yourself? Is it to please others, to please mommy and to please daddy? Is that the ultimate goal of Christian conduct? Is it so that we would not be criticized or people be suspicious of our behavior? Is that the goal of Christian conduct? Is it to be a model citizen in Antigua? So when we walk the street to say, there's the model citizen of Antigua. Is that why we do what we do? That's why we behave what we do? The ultimate goal, the ultimate end of our behavior and our conduct has to do with bringing our life in conformity to God's will. Never, ever forget that. That's how you're going to be judged. Jesus shocked a lot of people in his day because they thought they were in and they were out. You remember what he said? He said, many shall come to me that day and shall say to me, Lord, 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 have I not prophesied in your name? Have I not cast out demons? Have I not done so many wonderful works? And then he just said, I never knew you. That's a shocker. I never knew you. And then he goes on to say, it is he that does the will of the Father that matters. That's the issue. That's the issue. When you put Christianity at that level, you now begin to understand the sobriety and the seriousness of being a Christian. It takes it outside the realm of just human concern to being concerned about God's will. It elevates life and takes the mediocre things we do in life and put them to a high pedestal and say, listen, this is where we're going. Never be content with just being there. This is where we're doing. It's not about pleasing mommy or pleasing daddy or pleasing the pastor or pleasing my boyfriend or my wife or my husband. No, it's about God's will. God's will, that's the secret of this whole thing. And I want to suggest to you that this is where the church is today in tremendous problems, including the evangelical church. It has failed to emphasize this aspect of what Christianity is all about and what the Bible is all about. It's all about this matter of fulfilling God's will. Some people think of salvation only as a forgiveness of sins. That's all. Some think of it in terms of, you know what? Well, it's deliverance from hell. Some say, well, you know, it's about feeling happy. They see it that way. 
Some even think, well, it's about a life change. Those are true, but that's not the ultimate goal of why you became a Christian, why God saved you. It's to bring you in conformity to the image of his son and so fulfilling his will for your life. So the object of salvation is not just merely to deliver us from hell. It's to bring us to conformity into God's will. Another way of saying that is to say, quite frankly, that when it's conformity to him, who's Christ? He is sinless. He's perfection in all of his essence. And this is what God's will is for us. By the way, I would say this as well. This is why it is so hard to, to, to reach what you call a good pagan. Very hard to reach a good pagan. It's very hard to reach a moral man. The reason for that, he believes that his good living and his high morals is enough. As a matter of fact, some of these will tell you, I don't see why I need forgiveness of sin. I don't see why I need all this God talk. I'm a good person. I do all these things. I'm a, you know, I, I, I'm a philanthropist. I, I help people. I do all these good things. I don't see why we need all this gobbledygook thing about salvation and God is on Hardest people to reach are good pagans, good morally upright people. They will even say, you know what? I am better than half the people in the church. I know them. Yeah, they use that. Good pagans. Because they don't understand what the Christian faith is about. The Christian faith is not about you being saved from your sin and being saved from hell. It's about bringing you to this conformity to God's will. To get you to do God's will. That's what it's about. Now, if you don't like that, don't enter the Christian life. It's not for you. And we need to tell people that ahead of time so they don't come in and then later discover what it's all about and say, I don't want that. We need to tell them ahead of time. That's what it's all about. Let me ask you another question. What was the entire purpose of Christ's life? Lord, it's written of me, I come in the vulnerable to do thy will, O God. My meat and my drink is to do the will of God. That was his purpose. And that was man's purpose from the beginning. To fulfill and do God's will. So when Paul said the renewed mind will help you to understand that's the purpose of your life. That's why the psychologists have nothing along that line. And therefore, they have a skewed understanding of this whole matter of human behavior. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 15, and also in Luke chapter 18, the Lord explains the problem of the good pagan. It says a man went up to prayer. He's a religious man. He's a good man. And he's a praying man. And while he's praying, he says to God, you know, I, I want to thank you. I'm not an extortioner. I want to thank you that I am not an unjust person. I am not an adulterer like this guy over here. Who wouldn't he, can't even, see him? He can't even pray. He lifted up his hands and I don't say one word come out of his mouth. Because he is so evil, he can't say one word. And I want to thank you that you didn't make me like him. <laughs> That's the religious man, see. Congratulates himself. The hardest man to reach. 
And the reason why his problem is he's thinking as long as he doesn't commit extortion, doesn't commit adultery, don't do the... You see, they make Christianity negative. Christianity becomes what you don't do. So if I don't do this and I don't do that, I'm okay. They don't know that Christianity is positive. It's what you do do. You want to do God's will. That's what it amounts. Well, these things happen. But that's not the important. It's doing the positive things, doing God's will. Let me ask a question. What if you were not an extortion? You're not an adulterer. You're not a cheat. You're, you're not a liar. You're not a, and you never do God's will. Tell me how it benefits you. You tell me. You tell me this morning how it benefits you. Christianity needs to be turned on the top and come back to the fundamental teaching of Scripture so we understand what true, authentic Christianity is because I am convinced that many people don't understand what it's all about. And my thing is this, unless we have a right view of man, we'll always have a wrong view of salvation and what it's about. The Bible tells us that the right view of man is that the reason why God made you and God made me is this, that we would glorify him with our lives. If that's not your view of what man is supposed to be, you have a twisted, warped view of what humanity is all about. In other words, God made man for himself to commune with himself God made man to be the core ruler of planet earth as a steward. And when it says a steward, as one responsible to God. That's what God made man to be. And it is very, very clear that man was supposed to live a particular way according to God's will. Now listen to this. In the Garden of Eden, what was God's will in the Garden of Eden? No, it's very easy. You have all this. This is yours. But I want you to live in obedience to me. And there's one thing you must not do is to take the fruit of the forbidden. That was God's will. Adam's whole life revolves around one thing, fulfilling God's will. But do you know what the devil did to spoil that? This is what he did. He came to Adam and he said, listen, and Eve said, listen, did God tell you not to eat that fruit? And she said, yeah, but he not only tell me, he tell me not even to touch it. That's not the problem. I know people say she added. I'm not going to say she added, okay. But it's what the devil said. Let me tell you why God did what he did. Here's why he did what he did. God wants to keep you down. He knows the day you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. So he's trying to keep you down. See? And when he did that, the fall is not just about the sin that Adam committed. Not the, fruit. the real fall is that the whole thinking about God changed that time, about God's will. So what the devil is saying, listen, if that's God's will, he knows the day you eat the fruit, you become God's will is not good. It's not good. It's bad. He's keeping you down. God's will is not perfect. If it was perfect, he will never keep you down. And God's will is not well-pleasing. That's what the word approved, uh, 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 accepted. It's not well-pleasing because how could it be well-pleasing and he's trying to keep you down? 
It was not until man's whole view about God's will change that man sinned and committed sin. The enemy has always been making God's will look as something that is not good, not acceptable, and not perfect. And always twisting it. And it was that change, that mental change and outlook on Adam and Eve that led to the fall. As long as they saw God's will as good and perfect and well-pleasing, it was okay. But the moment somebody turned it in such a way that it seemed, wait a minute, ah, I never looked at it from that angle. So he really wanted to keep me down. I could be like, God, what kind of a, that can be a good thing for me. It all started here, brethren, in the mind. When the mind was twisted in regard to God's will. And that's why the same mind that was twisted now needs to be removed and renewed. To begin to see from God's will from a different perspective, as the Bible teaches. That isn't just what happened in the garden. It was all about God's will and twisting it to make it not look good, not acceptable, and not perfect. Now Paul is saying the renewed mind will restore the use of God's will. It's good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. Only the new renewed mind can help you see this. That's why it is so important for us as believers to have our minds renewed. Have it renewed. If our minds are not renewed, we will always be wrong about God's will. Our attitude will always be wrong. Our outlook will always be wrong. What is God's will for humanity? Hmm? God's will for humanity is the moral law. That was God's will, live by the moral law. But you ask any unsaved person out there, why he does not follow the moral law of God. You know what he tell you? It's too stringent. It restricts me. I don't see it as good. I don't see it as acceptable. I don't see it as perfect. As a matter of fact, the things I want to do, it tells me not to do. So that's why people do what they do. If they had seen that God's will have their ultimate good in mind, their ultimate well-being in mind, and saw it from that perspective, they would do what is right. What is God's will for the believer today? Hmm? Very simple answer, by the way. Be holy as I am holy. That's your purpose. The pursuit of holiness. Is the, it's the whole mission of your life as a believer is the pursuit of holiness. Here's what we have replaced that word holy. We believe that we are here to be happy. So we are pursuing happiness. See? And anything that leads us not to be happy, we don't see it as good. But God sees anything that don't help you to be holy, even though you're happy, is bad. It all has to do with the mind, see, how you look at these things. You know what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 7? Listen to these words. The carnal mind is at enmity with God and is not subject to the law of God, neither in thee can be. That's the unsaved mind. It's at war with God. 
There's a hostility between the unsaved mind and God. And the Bible says it cannot even subject itself. It can't be. The mind needs to be changed. And the carnal mind is only changed when the person is born again and regenerated. Only then does the carnal mind change. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21. The Apostle Paul in looking back and reciting the historical journey of these saints and where they came from. You know what he said? He said, we at one time were enemies of God in our what? Minds. In our minds. Enemies of God in our minds. And every one of us know that. Every one of us know that. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing again this need for this transformed mind as far as a believer is concerned. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us that a believer can test whether something is God's will. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.